as we have made our way through Revelation, made our way through these various scenes of chaos and judgment, all of this stuff that comes up. I know there's part of us that sort of sees all that, hears all that, and says, well, no, thank you. Doesn't sound that great. Doesn't sound that great to me. When, when Jesus tells us that we need to be prepared, willing, even rejoicing in our suffering, uh, the part of us that says, I'd rather not. Uh, I gave it the office. I, d- I don't think so. And much of our study of Christian eschatology, that's the big word that means a study of, of end times, much of our study of Christian eschatology in, in the Christian world today is all wrapped up in this idea about avoiding all the hard stuff, of avoiding the tribulation, avoiding the trials. It's, how, how, could we, how could we not go through that? It's about escape. And while Revelation does tell us that there are some specific things that the people of God will be protected from, that they, there, there are certain trials, certain tribulations that they will not experience, it's also very clear that there are some that we will, that there are going to be difficult times, and that patient endurance is what will be required of us. In other words, there are things that must happen. There are things that must happen moving forward, and many of the things that must happen are difficult things. Difficult for us to comprehend, difficult at at times even for us to think about. There's a a famous quote, sometimes attributed to uh, the boxer Joe Lewis, that everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. We all want the good parts of the equation, but some parts of the equation we'd rather leave out. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, about hard things, about discipline. I've got a lot on my ministry plate right now. It's a very aggressive schedule, and I also have personal goals and household goals and professional goals that that I want to be working on, and like everybody else, kind of have this struggle. How, how do you fit all the pieces in? How do you make all of this work? And, and so I've been thinking about, you know, I, I probably need to be more disciplined. I probably, you know, and here's the thing. We, when we face a problem like that, a lot of times we know what the answer is. It's just that the answer's hard. So we may not want the answer that we have, I call it the diet pill effect. You notice that there is always somebody marketing a new diet pill. Always. At any any point in modern American history, there is somebody marketing a new diet pill. And the diet pill always promises to melt your fat away. Right? The the latest one I keep keeps coming up in my social media feed. Is, is keto gummies. You're going to eat keto gummy bears and it's going to melt the fat away. Well, we're all reasonably intelligent people. And we know that this is bogus, right? We, we know that this isn't true. We know that if there was a, if there was a 
if there's a pill out there that's supposed to melt your fat away, we have learned that it is, it is either not going to work, or if it does work, it's probably going to kill you, right? Because, like, spending the afternoon in the microwave will melt your fat away, but it'll kill you at the same time. So there's no such thing as, a, as like, a magic pill for weight loss. But when we think, oh, I want to I get in better shape, I want to lose a few pounds, well, what do we say to that? Well, there's always diet and exercise. This is why there's a weight pill industry. Because somebody presents us with the option of diet and exercise and we say, well, that's probably not going to happen. So what's my next best option? Tell me more about that pill that I know doesn't work. That's, that's the diet pill effect. We would like to believe that there's an easy way out. And even if none of them have ever worked before, maybe, since everybody's so fascinated by this idea, maybe at some point somebody's going to crack the formula and make it work, and maybe I'll just wait for that. We really want an easy way out. And when we read these difficult passages in Revelation, I think there is a part of us that wants an easy way out. There is a new heaven and earth coming, but there is some stuff that has to happen that is difficult stuff. And I think a lot of the Christian world is asking, what, what, what's our next best option? And there isn't another option. I want you to keep that in mind as we open up chapter uh, 11 today. Chapter 11, the first couple of verses, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Okay, so John's attention, there's a lot going on here. We've got to kind of unpack this. John's attention is directed to the temple on earth. I remember last in our last chapter, John's perspective shifts. He's no longer in the throne room of God. He's describing things from the perspective of earth. So he's on the earth when he's told to go measure the temple. Now, again, this is a dream vision, so... Yet, can things happen that are not necessarily rational and logical? Sure they can. But here's the thing. The outer court of the temple, the outer court was not part of the original temple. So when this messenger tells John, go measure the temple but not the outer court, this gives us our best clue that we're talking about the temple on earth. The original temple, of course, this temple is mirrored in, in the throne room of God, right? We've already seen that. We've got the, the, the throne, the, we've got the, the altar, all of those are in the throne room of God. But the outer court of the temple is something that was added by Herod. So it only existed in the temple on earth. This gives us our, our best clue that we're talking about earth. Uh, that was not part of the original design, so presumably it's not part of the throne room in heaven. 
But John is told to measure something here that is probably immeasurable. Uh, And the first clue that we have about that is that he's told to measure all the worshipers as well. And how you use a measuring rod to measure worshipers is not clear at all. And it never says that, that, that John actually carries this measurement out. He's just told to make it. So how do you measure worshipers? But the bigger problem is that this letter is written around the end of the century and the temple on earth was destroyed in 70 AD. So the physical temple doesn't even exist at this point. But the church understood themselves to be the spiritual temple of God. So I think probably what's happening here is John is being asked to measure the church. And one of the reasons that measurement never takes place is is there's not, it's, it's, it's a spiritual idea, there's not really a physical way to carry out that measurement. Unlike some of the other things that are described to us in more physical terms and the measurements actually take place. But then he offers this rather startling uh, bit of information that pagans will trample the outer courts. Don't measure the outer courts because the pagans will trample them. Actually, he says Gentiles will trample them, but this is a bit of a play on words. Uh, the outer court in Jesus' day was called the court of the Gentiles. It was the place where the Gentiles were allowed to be. So if you're a Gentile who wants to worship Jehovah God, this is as far as you've come into the temple. It's the court of the Gentiles. And that space is considered basically unclean. This is, in fact, the same space that Jesus clears when he he overturns the tables of the merchants and the money changers. It's in the court of the Gentiles. All those things are really just outside the part of the temple grounds that are considered sacred and holy. In this sense, you know, there's neither Jew nor Greek in Christ. So we're not using Gentile in its, in its ethnic sense here. The early church believed themselves to be grafted into the tree of Israel. And so in, a, in spiritual terms, they were Israel and everybody outside of Israel was Gentile. So we're using Gentile here basically to mean pagan. Put that whole picture together, and what have you got? The faithful of God are the temple of God, and just immediately outside the temple of God, the pagans are doing their damage. We're told that this is going to last for 42 months. That that terminology is going to be presented to us over and over again in a number of different ways. 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days, or time, times, and half a time. They're all basically the same measurement. They all mean three and a half. And it's going to come up over and over again. It's a concept that is originally introduced to us by the prophet Daniel. You might remember it from way back when we talked about the prophet Daniel. Uh, But this whole notion of of time, times, and half a time, or three and a half, uh, comes up in Daniel. It's presented here in these next few chapters of Revelation over and over and over again. Three and a half is basically a time cut short. 
okay? So you remember that the number seven that we've already dealt with a lot in Revelation is symbolic of fullness and completion and, and everything reaching its fruition, everything being fulfilled. Seven is this perfect number. Three and a half is half of seven, and basically what it means is something that is not allowed to come to its full fruition, something that is not fulfilled. And it can be either positive or negative. There is this great evil, this great tribulation that Daniel talks about that is cut short. It is denied its fruition. It's not allowed to do all the destruction it would do if it was allowed to complete itself. That is a good thing. The ministry of Jesus is cut short after three and a half years. That is probably something we could consider a negative. But then his death is cut short after three days. That's a definite positive, right? These are all things that are cut short, and, it's, and that, that symbolism is all wrapped up in this, this idea of three and a half or 1,260 days or 42 months or time times and half a time. And like I say, it's going to be used repeatedly, and if you listen to a lot of guys interpreting Revelation, they take all of this extremely literally, and they try to order these three-and-a-half-year time periods and make sense of all of that. I'm probably not going to do that for you. Um, I think the thing that's really important here is this idea that there, is, there are things that are going to happen that will be cut short, that will not be allowed to reach their fruition. And so there's kind of a, a bit of a code here that we're given to let us know when we're talking about those things. There are things that have happened or things that will happen that will be denied fulfillment. And so in verse 3, and I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days. There it is again. Clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, the two witnesses is a requirement of the law. There's a whole lot of speculation about the identity of these two witnesses, right? So depending on who you're reading, it might be Elijah and Enoch, it might be Elijah and Moses, it might be the... 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, it might be uh, Israel and the church, all kinds of different ideas. And they all have some degree of validity, some interesting points to make. But the really important thing that we need to understand is that this is a requirement of the law. Under the law, a claim, a legal claim, could not be made without two witnesses. And this carries over into the Christian era. We read about um, elders, for instance, in the Christian church. You cannot bring a charge against an elder of the church unless there are at least two witnesses to substantiate that charge. If there's not two witnesses, you're not even supposed to consider the charge. Uh, Jesus is confronted with this during his ministry. The Sadducees say, look, you're testifying on your own behalf. This, that's completely invalid. And Jesus says, I am testifying on my own behalf. I am my own witness, and my Father is the second witness. So he says, this, this, is, how, this is how I'm fulfilling the law with this. 
They will prophesy. They will speak the truth for three and a half years, and they'll be clothed in sackcloth while they do it. And this tells us what really what their, their prophecy is all about. It is about repentance. They will be calling the world to repentance. The two olive trees symbolize the kingdom and the priesthood. All right, so we've seen lampstands already in Revelation. They've already been identified with the church. But this imagery of the two olive trees takes us back to the prophet Zechariah. And you might remember this when we were studying through Ezra and Nehemiah. The prophet Zechariah has this vision of two olive trees. And uh, the oil from the olive trees is sort of being pumped from the trees directly into this lampstand and is the light for Israel. And the most common interpretation of that is that the two olive trees represent Joshua and Zerubbabel, who are the leaders during this time when the city, uh, the temple is being rebuilt. And uh, Joshua is the descendant of the priesthood, descendant of Aaron. And so he, is, he represents the priesthood of Israel. And Zerubbabel is a descendant of David, so he represents the kingdom of Israel. So in Zechariah's vision, the two olive trees represent the priesthood and the kingdom being a light for the people of Israel. Fast forward to Revelation, and not only do we have the lampstand being representative of the church, but Revelation has made it very clear that Christ has made us as the church a kingdom and priesthood of God. And so what do we have? In, no matter how you interpret it, in one sense or another, rising up from within God's people is, are, are these prophets. Whether their identity is specific, whether it's literal, whether it's figurative, they are rising up from God's people to prophesy. Verses 5 and 6, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and devours their enemy. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. In other words, they will speak with the power of the prophets of God. Now, I chose this picture of somebody breathing fire, but there's not really a reason for us to take that literally and assume that these prophets are breathing fire on their enemies. Because fire was a pretty common metaphor for prophecy. That if you don't like what the prophet's saying, it kind of burns like fire. In fact, uh, in fact, Jeremiah is told, God tells Jeremiah, I'm going to make the words in your mouth like fire and I'm going to make the people like firewood. So when you speak these words of prophecy, it's going to burn. It's going to burn. And then they, uh, they, can, they can bring about drought. Elijah, of course, prophesied drought. There's drought for years in Israel. Moses saw the waters of Egypt turn to blood. So really, the message here is, is they're like the prophets of old. They speak the truth. And the truth just destroys the strongholds of men, destroys the strongholds, the deception 
the lies of the world. And as Jesus told his disciples, you ask anything in my name and it will be done. You have some mountains to move, it'll happen. Uh, these prophets have that power. Whatever they ask of God, whatever plague they want to rain down on humanity, it comes. In verse 7, now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some, of, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze upon their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because the two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. So these prophets will be abruptly martyred. And this is how their prophetic ministry is cut short. Just quite jarring. It's not clear. It really depends on, on how we interpret this, what, what it actually means. It's, it's not clear if this is the demise of specific leaders from within the church or if it's the demise of the church as a whole. But what the text does tell us is that the people of the world, the people who are in rebellion against God, who remain unrepentant, celebrate this as a holiday. This is a victory over the faith. They exchange gifts. It's like Christmas. They're having a good time because they have brought down these messengers from God. Why are they celebrating it? Because they've been tormented by their words. Now, does that sound familiar at all? You ever hear that culturally? Don't tell me the, the truth because I'm triggered by it. Don't want to hear it. They leave their bodies on display in the public square of the great city. Now, the great city, when it says where the Lord is crucified, makes us think of Jerusalem. But it also says figuratively this is Sodom and Egypt. Now, Jerusalem was a place, in fact, that Jesus accused of killing their prophets, and Jerusalem had its problems. But generally speaking, in symbolic terms, Jerusalem is the city of God. It's, it's the good city. And other cities and nations are compared to it negatively. So applying the terms uh, Sodom and Egypt, which are symbols of the cities and nations in rebellion against God, probably not Jerusalem. The early Christians would have most likely understood this to mean Rome itself. And even though Rome is not physically the city where Jesus was crucified, it is the seat of power that facilitated his crucifixion. So in that sense, it is Rome that bears some responsibility for that crucifixion. So the great city is symbolic of the empires of men. Verse 11, but after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then he heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. 
And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. In other words, their much celebrated demise will be cut short. Their death will be cut short. As the world looks on, what the world thought it had destroyed is suddenly renewed, suddenly comes back to life. Now, this should start to feel very familiar, right? We have a three and a half year ministry of speaking truth that irritates the enemies of God. We have the prophets suddenly struck down, suddenly martyred, and after three and a half days, rising back up from their death. Does that sound like anybody? And their ascension, being called up into the clouds, their ascension completes their Christ-likeness. So this, I think, is the point of this whole bit of narrative, is that the ministry of the church in the last days works one way. There is only one path to the final victory, and that is the church follows the pattern of Jesus Christ. That's the only path. Christ says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Those are nice religious words. Nice spiritual-sounding text. But deny yourself is a lot harder to do than it is to say. My selfish nature is constantly competing for my attention. But take up your cross, that, that's even more in your face. There's not too many different ways to interpret take up your cross except be prepared to sacrifice your life. That, that's what Jesus actually calls us to do. Be prepared to sacrifice your life. Now, I don't know how many of us, if any of us, will be called upon to physically lose our life for Jesus Christ. But I do know this, the more that we are prepared to lose our life for Christ, the more likely we are to live our life for Christ. But it feels sometimes to me like the church today is asking, mm, that's probably not going to happen, so what's my next best option? And there isn't another option. This is the only way the final victory comes. Verse 15 says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. At the seventh trumpet, heaven again erupts in worship. Something we saw earlier in Revelation, it all happens again. The seventh trumpet is blown and heaven just erupts in worship and it's very clear that something has happened. 
But what's interesting is, is, is that the text here in Revelation is not that clear about what just happened. It's just clear that everybody in heaven's pretty excited about it. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you why that is. Because this is the part of the story that the church already knows. This is the part that they've already been told. They've already been told what happens at the last trumpet blast. And so they have texts like this from Paul in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. This is what they already know. This is the part of the story they're familiar with, the part of the story they've been told to put their hope in. At the last trumpet, the Lord returns to rule the earth. And I know a great many Christians today associate this passage from Thessalonians with the rapture, that whole idea that the church is going to be taken away and miss all of this stuff. I think that misses the point. The point is that Jesus is coming down. And the risen in Christ and those who are alive meet him in the air. The imagery here is that of, uh, that we saw at the triumphal entry. It's the imagery that we saw when David is returning to the city of Jerusalem. The imagery here is that of the people coming out of the world to meet the king as he arrives and escort him to his rightful place in the world. And how do we know that that's what this is about? Because Revelation tells us that the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of Christ. That's the point. That's the point. When Jesus comes, all of the empires of men collapse and this world becomes his kingdom. What, what we're supposed to be praying for all the time, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the realization of that prayer. It's right here in this moment. It's what the people were told to put their hope in, and they know when the last trumpet blows that that's specifically what's going to happen. Verse 18, the elders sing, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. In other words, justice will finally come to the earth through righteous judgment. And there is no question about the fact that the phrase righteous judgment is intimidating. Right? That's, that's a hard one. Right? Righteous judgment of God is going to purify the earth. And again, I think it's kind of one of those moments where like, Monty, I think I'll take what's behind curtain number two instead. And there is no curtain number two. Righteous judgment is what's going to make it all right again. The brokenness of the world must be made right. Heaven and earth must be made new. And that is only possible if the empires of the world are destroyed 
and replaced by the kingdom of God. It is only possible if the deception of the world is replaced with the righteousness of God. Verse 19 says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and a severe hailstorm. There's that earthquake and storm all combined together again. Remember, we saw that symbolism before, and it really means something is happening where God is invading the earth. And it's a turning point. Something of great significance is happening. And what is that thing of great significance? Well, it is that the realm of God is revealed to the earth. Remember, John's perspective here is from earth. He sees, essentially, the doors of heaven open, the doors of the Holy of Holies open, and now this space that, even in the earthly temple, was restricted only to the high priest. In this spiritual temple, in this heavenly temple, it all opens up. And this is the first sense that we get in John's revelation, that the border between heaven and earth begins to dissolve. He can see right into the throne room of God. He can see the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy place. Now, is all of that exciting or terrifying? Well, that is a matter of perspective, isn't it? That is a matter of perspective. And here is the underlying message. Those who welcome the kingdom already serve the king. The foundational confession of the Christian faith is Jesus is Lord. Right? Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, you speak it and believe it and you'll be saved. Jesus is Lord. This, this is what our confession is about. This is what our faith is about. This is, what our, this is why we're baptized into the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Because we believe Jesus is Lord. Now, sometimes I think we'd like a shortcut. I think we'd like a shortcut. We, we'll, we'll speak it. We'll celebrate it. We'll sing songs about it as long as we don't have to live as if it's true. I know what I'm tempted to do. Maybe you are too. I'm tempted to tell Jesus not that I'll live in your kingdom until your kingdom comes, but that I'll, I'll be the king until you, you show up. I'll occupy your throne for you. When you come, you can have it back. I'm, I'm just keeping it warm for you, Jesus. I'll, I'll be the king until then. The truth is we can't play these games with Jesus. Jesus himself says, many are going to say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, look at all the great stuff we did. And he's going to say, I, I don't know you. don't recognize you. He says, those who love their life more than they love me, not, not worthy to be my followers. 
There's no playing games with Jesus. We're not going to fool him. We're not going to pull one over on him. That's not all about perfection. Lord knows if it was about perfection, I'd be in a lot of trouble. We'd all be, wouldn't we? <laughs> it's not about perfection. It's not about that at all. But when we talk about putting Jesus first, when we talk about putting Jesus first, we, we can't be the people who say, yeah, that's probably not going to happen, so what's our next best option? There's no other option. Putting Jesus first is the only way all of this works out. But the good news, the exciting news, the hopeful news from Revelation is this. Despite all my imperfection, despite how often I fail at my attempts to do it, when I'm working towards this reality in which Christ reigns in me, Christ reigns in my home, where Christ reigns in my church, the truth is, whatever comes, whether it's joy or trial, whether it's comfort or tribulation, it doesn't matter. Whatever comes, we will be the people who rise up into the clouds in order to escort Jesus to his throne. We will never have a better faith than